When we're children, we're in Sunday school. One of the very first Bible stories that we learn after we learn of Adam and Eve is the story of Noah. And as children, we're fascinated with that story. We're fascinated with the story of the ark and the animals. And there's so many questions we have. When you think about that wooden boat that was that size, and two of every kind of animal, and you think of of that boat and those animals, and you know one of the things I've always wondered about, the boat's made of wood. Where did they keep the termites? I wish that, you know, when I, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Noah, when I get to meet him, I'm going to say, Noah, I've got a question that's bothered me all my life. Where did you put the termites on that wooden boat? But they had all of those animals on there. And it's a fascinating story. And you're thinking about right now, okay, so why are we talking about Noah this morning? He built an ark. He put the animals in there two by two. He managed to find some place to put the termites where they wouldn't eat the boat up before they got off of it. It rained 40 days and 40 nights and the earth was destroyed and Noah, his wife, and his three sons and their wives were saved. End of story. Let's go on something else. Well, in our text this morning in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, Peter calls attention to something that we often overlook about Noah. He writes, And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness. Now when we think of Noah, we think of a shipbuilder. But Peter calls attention to the fact that Noah was a preacher. Now I understand something that maybe you don't think I understand, but I do. And I understand that preachers are not a universally interesting subject. The very mention of the word preacher often leads some people to have to stifle a yawn. I've known folks that felt like society ought to be divided into three classes, men, women, and preachers. And we're not accustomed, when we think about Noah, we're not accustomed to think of Noah as a preacher. You see, Noah's reputation as a preacher, to a great degree, was destroyed by the flood. We think of Noah as a shipbuilder or an architect. And make no mistake about it, Noah built a first-rate ship. And he also proved himself to be a sailor of first-class ability. But the supreme claim to fame and the supreme claim that Noah has on our attention this morning is that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Now don't get the idea that Noah was preaching from the pulpit of some antediluvian church. There is no doubt that Noah never spoke from behind a pulpit. Noah preached though. Noah preached by what he said. More importantly, Noah preached by what he did. And folks, that's the most important preaching that any of us do. It's in that fashion that all of us preach. 
And we preach every day. There are times that those of us in the pulpit preach some very poor and very dry sermons. Fortunately, on those, on those occasions when we preach a rather poor and rather dry sermon, there's always some kind, loving soul that's quick to point that out to us. But guess what? Oftentimes we hear some poor sermons that come from the pew. We hear folks preach a very poor sermon sometimes when recreation's more important to them than worship. We've heard some pretty poor sermons when folks lose their temper in Brookshire's or Walmart. And we've heard some pretty dreadful sermons when folks mistreat their fellow man. We hear some pretty horrid sermons when fill in the blank is more important to members of the body of Christ than the worship with the saints is. We hear some pretty lousy sermons sometimes when folks decide that they want to get upset, get their feelings hurt, get mad, and run off because they didn't get their way about something. Do we get the idea? Sometimes there's some pretty awful sermons that get preached from pews. Sometime go back and reread the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5 and verses 19 through 21. You're going to find something. The majority of the sins, the works of the flesh mentioned in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, they're not those gross sins of passion like adultery and murder and fornication. Those are not the majority of the sins. The majority of the works of the flesh in Galatians 5, 19 through 21 are sins of attitude. And they're sins of disposition. Granted, there's some poor preaching done from the pulpit. There'll be some poor preaching done from the pulpit all over the length and breadth of this land today. I've had sermons that Two minutes into them, I was looking and thinking, okay, where can I cut something out of this and end this misery a little bit sooner than normal? And there have been sermons that halfway through, I knew I was drilling a dry hole. And there have been sermons through the years that I have taken and I have, instead of leaving my outline on the pulpit, I have folded it up, put it in my pocket, and thrown it in the trash can during the closing prayer and never be seen or heard from ever again. But the pulpit does not hold a monopoly on poor preaching. The pew does its share of poor preaching also. Now you think about Noah. Noah is a preacher. What special qualifications did Noah have for preaching? Sometimes it's amazing to read 
the advertisements that churches put out when they're looking for preachers. And read the list of requirements that they have. Several years ago in the bulletin, you know, I put put a little tongue-in-cheek article that at long last the perfect preacher has been found. He has one brown eye and one blue eye. And he's completely bald with a full head of hair. And he's mature in years so that he's young enough to relate to the younger folk and so forth. Well, I've got here, and this is just one example that I've got for you. The blank church has 150 members with four elders and two deacons. It's a thriving and growing town located in beautiful East Texas. Our ideal candidate will be a family man with at least two years of post-secondary education in biblical studies, degree preferred. Five years of experience in preaching and evangelizing in a church of Christ. A proven track record of church growth from previous pulpit positions and who's motivated by a love for God and for people of all ages and backgrounds. We are looking for a minister with a supportive wife who is involved in his ministry and church activities. Okay, the guy's got to have at least a master's degree in biblical studies. Paul didn't even have that. Now, responsibilities will include, but are not necessarily limited to, preparing and preaching sermons for two Sunday services and teaching Bible lessons for Wednesday evening and other classes as directed by the elders. Seeking out and conducting personal evangelistic Bible studies in the community. Fostering spiritual growth and development of members through preaching and teaching. Cooperative leadership with our elders and deacons as part of our leadership team. Officiating at weddings and funerals for congregation members. Spiritual counseling for congregation members as needed. Working with other worship leaders on organized and effective worship services. Managing the church office and editing the church bulletin with assistance from the church secretary. Working a full and fair week while also balancing his time to allow for rest and the needs of his family. Please submit cover letter, resume, three recent sermon samples, at least one on video, personal and professional references and salary requirements to the minister search committee. And this is one of the, this is not one of the most demanding lists of qualifications that I've seen. There was one that I looked for and I could not find it. But they expected the preacher to put in at least a 40-hour work week. My goodness, I would welcome only putting in a 40-hour work week. But he was expected to put in at least a 40-hour work week. But now listen to this. Sundays and Wednesdays didn't count as work time. The last time, Brian and I had both looked at that one and we laughed about it 
and we wondered who they were going to get. The last time he and I either one checked, they had had their ad up for 18 months and still hadn't had any, found anybody. And uh, I, I, I jokingly said, I said, well, the only thing I can think is the guy that takes that job is, sleep, is fixing to spend his second winter, his second winter, sleeping in a leaky tent by the side of the road, and he's willing to take whatever job he can find. Those are some of the requirements. Well, nothing said about any of those special requirements that Noah might have possessed. I don't think Noah had a master's degree in biblical studies. There's no hint to any of his educational advantages or his personal magnetism or whether he was a good mixer or not. But there were some fundamental things Noah had that are necessary. They were necessary then and they are necessary now. The Scripture tells us in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9 that Noah walked with God. That means that one day Noah met God and became conscious of the presence of God. And once he met God, nothing seemed as important as to keep in the fellowship of God. Knowing God brought life for Noah out of the drab commonplace of mere existence. And Noah listened to God. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 13 tells us that God spoke to Noah. Now make no mistake about it, Noah was not the only man that God has spoken to. He spoke to Adam, he spoke to Abraham, he spoke to Saul, and God has spoken to others. God speaks to us even today. He speaks to us through His Word. And He speaks to us through His providence. God speaks to us through joy and sorrow and through laughter and tears, through temptation and triumph. So you ask, what's the difference between Noah and the men of his age? The difference is not that God loved Noah and God didn't love his friends and neighbors. The difference was that when God spoke, Noah was listening. While others listened to the voice of the world, Noah listened to the voice of God. Noah was a man that was perfect. That's what the Bible says. And that's a statement that's somewhat shocking. Because if we're honest, we don't like people like that. We don't like people that God would consider to be perfect. In actuality, we don't even believe they really exist. But the Bible tells us Noah was perfect in all his generations. And Noah walked with God. That doesn't mean that Noah had reached the height of moral and spiritual maturity and that that made any further progress needless and impossible. It doesn't mean that Noah was so good that he was incapable of sin. But it means that Noah was willing to let God direct his life. That Noah was willing to submit his will to the will of God. That Noah was willing to live God's kind of life. And right now, what you're thinking about is this good man and his shameful fall. And I'm not going to blink at the fact of Noah's sin, because the Bible doesn't blink at it either. 
When we write the biography of our heroes, we tend to gloss over their failings and their shortcomings. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible tells us of the failings of Moses and David and Peter and the others. The Bible does not hesitate to point out the worst as well as the best. Genesis chapter 9 tells us the story of Noah. And Noah planted a vineyard. He became a husbandman. And Noah raised some lovely grapes. So Noah took those lovely grapes he had raised and he made a bit of home brew. And he drank it. Not only did Noah drink it, Noah drank way too much of it. And Noah got beastly drunk. In fact, the Scripture says that he was uncovered in his tent. Well, Noah had a son named Ham. And Ham went in and saw his father naked in his tent. And when Ham saw this staid and upright man well old, he couldn't keep quiet about that. So the first thing he had to do was go and tell his brothers Shem and Japheth. Well, if you keep reading, you find that God placed a curse on Ham. Now that strikes us as somewhat strange, doesn't it? Ham wasn't the one that made the home brew. Ham wasn't the one that drank it. Ham wasn't the one that was laying naked in his tent because he'd had too much home brew to drink. But the curse was not on the man that planted the vineyard and got drunk. The curse was on the one who rejoiced in his downfall and just couldn't wait to run out and tell everybody else about it. Notice the difference in the conduct of Shem and Japheth. Scripture says they refused to look on their father's shame. And rather than rejoice and run out and try to tell others about it, they chose to place the mantle of love on Noah. In that way, Shem and Japheth, they possessed, they showed themselves possessed by the Spirit of Jesus long before Jesus was ever born. But notice one more thing about Noah. Noah didn't fall during those stressful years while he was building the ark. He didn't fall during those grim days of depression when the world was submerged by water. He fell when the hard times were over. And he'd come upon times of ease. And in spite of this fall, the main tone and tenor of Noah's life was one of wholehearted devotion to God. He walked with God and he listened to God. Have you ever thought about what Noah preached? Any young boy or girl in Sunday school feels like they could tell you about Noah's preaching and the theme of Noah's preaching. And they'll tell you in a heartbeat that the theme of Noah's preaching was the flood. But in saying that, folks, they're mistaken. Peter tells us that the overarching theme of Noah's preaching was the arresting theme of righteousness. 
it says Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Now there's no doubt he had some things to say about the flood. But the flood was not inevitable. The flood was only inevitable if people refused to become righteous. The flood was only inevitable if people refused to repent. Noah made it plain with his preaching. The supreme tragedy of sin is not that a sinner would cease to live. The great tragedy of sin is that the sinner ceases to be fit to live. In preaching righteousness, that old-fashioned preacher wanted to bring home to the consciousness of his hearers the lack of righteousness that they had. He wanted to make them understand they'd sinned and they'd come short of the glory of God. He urged upon them the absolute necessity of being righteous. He insisted they simply could not live without righteousness. Because you see, the way of righteousness is the way of repentance. It's the way of turning from sin to God. So we ask, what was the outcome of Noah's preaching? Noah had a long ministry. 120 years. It stretched through toilsome years and trying years. How many converts did he win? What were his results? Well, it's a pretty disappointing answer. 120 years of preaching, and as far as the big wide world is concerned, Noah didn't have a single convert. I'm quite certain there were those who admired Noah. There were those who honored him for his courage and his unswerving loyalty to his convictions. I'm also certain there were others that laughed at him. I'm certain there were others that were considered him a fool. I'm certain there were some that pitied him as being completely nuts. But Noah kept preaching. And sometimes it's encouraging for us to realize that with all of Noah's preaching, he had not one single convert. And I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact because our age and our world and our society is obsessed with bigness and our society is obsessed with numbers and our society is obsessed with grand, colossal, and big things. But you search the New Testament from Matthew chapter 1 to Revelation 22 and you will find not one single scripture there where the church is commanded to grow. Not one. It's not there. We're commanded to be faithful. And we're commanded to preach and teach the gospel. Noah preached, though, by his life. And just in the same way Noah preached with his life, all of us preach with our lives this morning. And the question is, what are you preaching? Righteousness? 
or rebellion? What, what are you preaching? There used to be that old saying, don't forget. Your Bible or your life. Your life may be the only Bible that your neighbor ever reads. If your life is your neighbor's Bible, what are they reading? What do they think about Jesus? What do they think about the church that Jesus gave His life for? Are there changes you need to make? This is your opportunity to do that as we stand and while we sing.